everybody. It's Saturday, July 19th, 2014. It's 9 p.m. in Portland, Oregon. I'm Jack Miller. And I'm Shannon Emerson. And this is White Tiger Radio. Thank you for listening. So, uh, Shannon, what's on your mind tonight? You know, I, I either have everything on my mind or nothing on my mind. So I'm going to answer your question with a question and say... What's on your mind tonight? My mind. On your mind. Do we want to know? My mind is completely nah, blank. We don't want to know. Actually, we it's don't want to know. It's completely blank. I've it's mastered blank? the trick of emptying my mind. Are you doing transcendental meditation or something you didn't tell me? I don't call it that. I just, it's a thing. I just empty my mind of thoughts. And I'm thoughtless at that point. You are, you are thoughtless. I mean, you're not thinking anything. No. Completely empty. I don't know even how I'm talking, in fact, if my mind is empty. It's a trick. Okay, on tonight's show, we've got fictional stories with the author as the main character. I've got some good ones. And we'll be playing songs in between that are about the songwriter's real life. Let's get started with a little bit of Lou Reed. Hiked her way across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side Everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was given head She says, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side Said, hey babe Take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls go Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
Then I guess she had to crash Valium would have helped that patch I said, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side I said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side And the colored girls say Do, 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 cheese on wheat, banana, apple, cottage cheese with a pepperoncini thrown on top, lunch, same basic lunch I've been eating for 34 years. See, when I graduated high school in 2014, I became a coal miner. Reluctantly. Because like everyone else in America, I saw the writing on the wall. I knew coal was going away. But my daddy was a coal miner and his daddy was a coal miner. So I'm a coal miner. But I told my kids to get the hell out of West Virginia. I said, there's no work here for you. I said, go to college, but you're going to have to put yourself through college, because I may make it to retirement, and I may be able to support your mama and me, but I can't support you. And as I sit here on Whistler's Peak, I look back on that first day, that first day of coal mining. And I look east over what might be the most beautiful view in America. To my back, west, what was previously called Critchfield Mining Company. Quite possibly the worst view in America. But today is a new day, September 30th, 2048, the day I became a federal employee, the day I begin work on the largest conservation effort ever taken on by the American government, the day 18 years prior to me retiring with federal benefits. So I sit here and I'll watch the sun come up and I'll finish my lunch. With a smile on my face, I'll head back down into that hole. Because today, I am a federal coal man.
Don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. That was Loretta Lynn's first number one hit. The first of 16 number one songs she would produce in her stellar career. That was released in 1967. Uh, that's an autobiographical song, as we're doing tonight. And that song is about her husband, Mooney, who was, among other things, a heavy drinker. And uh, apparently he was also a cheater. Uh, the story of Loretta Lynn's marriage is pretty interesting. I bet a lot of people know about it. Uh, there was a movie, Coal Miner's Daughter, though. Uh, there was a lot of misinformation in that film. Um, misinformation? Like, it wasn't true? Lies. Lies? Yes. Loretta Lynn had been telling lies most of her life about her age, and she was portrayed as having been married at age 13 to Mooney. Uh, You're not going to sit there and call Loretta Lynn a liar, are you? She was a liar for a long time. You can't do that. I did it. Uh, she was actually 15 when she married Mooney, which is, I don't know why you would go about saying you were only 13 when you were 15. It seems maybe in the hollers of West Virginia, that was, uh, 15 was an old maid. Maybe that makes you two years younger. I suppose. But yeah, she married when she was 15 years old to uh, a man who was 21. His nickname was Mooney, uh, and that was for running moonshine. Uh, they had four children by the time she was 20 years old, all before she started her recording career. Now, Mooney did encourage her to uh, hone her craft and start her career, and they were married their entire lives, his entire life, until he died in 1996. Nearly 50 years those people were married. Really? I, I didn't realize that. Yep. She married somebody at age 15, and she stayed married to him for almost half a century until he died. Now, the relationship was definitely rocky, as that song and many of her other songs uh, indicate um, don't Come Home and Drinking with Loving on My Mind. Um, her second number one hit was uh, released the following year, which was Fist City. Um, and that was another autobiographical song that was a warning to women to stay away from her man or pay the price because apparently he was, uh, he was quite a strayer. Fist as, City. Uh, Fist City. She'll bust you up, Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn. Uh, before that, we had a story by Tate Emerson, Coleman. And we started that set with Walk on the Wild Side, and that was by Lou Reed. That song was on uh, Lou Reed's Transformer album, which came out in 72, which was produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson, who's not as notable as David Bowie, but David Bowie took an interest in Lou Reed and helped him produce that album. Um, I bet it would have been fun to hang out with those two guys in 1972. It would have been all right. Maybe if we weren't as young. There would have been some mascara involved. I'm sure. Most likely. Yeah. Possibly. Maybe a drink or two. Tall shoes, a drink or two. Um, that song, of course, as many people probably already know, discusses um, or each verse is sort of talks about a uh, a notable person in the Andy Warhol factory zone. Um, all those people. Uh, one of the, I don't know which verse it is, but um, Little Joe, the, the uh, Sticky Fingers, the Rolling Stones Sticky Fingers album, the picture of the crotch, essentially, that's him. That's who? Well. Andy Warhol or no, Lou little, Reed? No, Little Joe. Little Joe. Little Joe, uh, who was uh, Joe D'Alessandro. And what what did him. he do? He just had a crotch. Oh, he was... Uh, was a crotch model? No, no, he... Was I think an actor? Yeah, he was an actor in some of the Warhol movies, and uh, that that was yeah, pretty much that's what he just hung around, and he was one of the actors in one of the movies. Um, I mean, to get your crotch on a Rolling Stones album cover, I would say that's got to be the pinnacle of his career. Well, whatever else he did, I think the Rolling Stones went to Andy Warhol and said, "We want some art for our album," and he 
pulled out that photo and said, let's do this. I'm not sure what the details are, but that's, I think that's how it went down. Um, Fun so, times. so Lou Reed, I don't know if you're aware of this, but he, so this, this album came out in 72. So in 1970, he played his last show with um, the Velvet Underground in New York City. He played his last show with them in 1970. His parents picked him up from the show. His parents. And he went back, he moved back home. A boomerang. And took a job as an accountant with his father. No way. And made $40, $40 a week or something. And these are the same parents who um, forced him to undergo shock treatment to cure him of his homosexual tendencies. So he was already in New York. He was already in the Velvet Underground. Went back to his parents. Into the bosom of the loving home. But then obviously came back to New York and produced this album and many, many others. So the accounting job didn't work out for Lou. No, he, he was... Worked out for the rest of us. He, he was, in fact, him. shocked how much he didn't like the accounting job. Shocking. Shocking. I bet his parents were quite shocked as well. Let's move on. We have another story right now to play for you in our show. The edge was coming off the mescaline, and my mind cleared just enough that I could see the jackbooted thug waving us down. Gripping the steering wheel, I inhaled and glanced over at my lawyer. He lay sleeping off a tequila and ether high. Small spit bubbles forming and then bursting on his lips with every rasping breath. I knew he wasn't going to be of much use. The window cracked with the sound of a baton, and I opened my door, stood up, and pounded black. I knew I was going to need to focus. Indicating that I should follow him into the checkpoint, his Gestapo cohort, sporting a burl handle AK-47, made me understand that there was no choice. Gaining equilibrium as the speed finally started kicking in, I followed, reaching into my back pocket for a cigarette. Standing a full head taller than everyone else in the room gave me a view of these petty larcenists that I didn't want to see. The timing and rhythm of their demands, passport, visa, car documents, were practiced to the point of atavistic perfection. Damn it, I needed my lawyer or a belt of scotch, preferably both. Reaching into my shirt for another black, I was startled to hear my name. Mike, you, Mr. Mike? Twisting around, I found myself facing the arch-villain, a weasel-eyed senior officer with more coffee stains on his shirt than bars on his shoulder. Sweat broke out on my forehead when he told me to follow him into his office. What did this sick, sadistic pervert want with me behind closed doors? My, my sphincters clenched involuntarily as I slipped the pill under my tongue and dried my palms on my shorts. The stench of his greed, the rank odor of dirty money, permeated everything. You'll not have Kazakhstan insurance. That is very bad. His smoothly broken English lulling me briefly as the wall started closing in. In his left hand, he held my license, and with his right, he reached over and pulled open the top drawer of his desk. Suddenly, the room was full of spiders, pouring out of the desk and climbing the walls. Shuddering in horror, I jabbered insanely, begging for my life and terrified at his obliviousness to the emergency in hand. We were both about to be consumed by flesh-eating arachnids, and he only wanted cash. Shaking uncontrollably, I scattered rubles on his desk, only to see his smile splay into a grimace as a giant tarantula savagely tore at his cheeks. Somehow the racket of melee outside broke through my consciousness. The door suddenly blew open. My lawyer, all six foot six and three hundred and fifty pounds of him, drew a bead on me and bellowed, I'm your attorney, damn it! How dare you enter into a negotiation without me? We're leaving now! Staggering to my feet, I could only marvel at the carnage. Give me the keys, commanded my lawyer. Raising a choking pall of burning rubber, he finally released the handbrake and took off 
the gear stick in one hand and a half-empty bottle of tequila in the other. Give a damn about my bad reputation. That's right, Joan Jet. You say it. <laughs> Am I too excited there? No. Joan Jet just gets me going, and I'm, you know. I'm uh, yeah, no, it's. Uh, That's a great song to amazing. dance around the garage to. Not that I was doing that. No, certainly not. So that was "Bad Reputation" by Joan Jet, uh, another autobiographical song. Uh, Joan wrote the song with Kenny Laguna, um, who was the guy who helped her establish her solo career after her original group, which she uh, founded when she was in her teens in the late 1970s, The Runaways. When that group broke, group broke up, um, Kenny helped her launch her solo career, which she had a giant number of hits in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and the thing is, is that that song, Bad Reputation, came out of her experience with trying to start her solo career. Uh, she couldn't get a record contract 23 different record companies rejected her uh, and they said things like, and this is a quote from Kenny Laguna, he said, no, she's too crazy like the punks and Nazis. Uh, Kenny went on to say, Joan had this bad reputation and no label would sign her. And one day she said something, or I said something to her and she said, uh, I don't care about my bad reputation. And he was like, wait a minute, there's a song right there. So that's how the song got written. Really? Yeah. She w he was giving her what he calls in his memoir, old man advice trying to get her to calm down a little bit and get a record contract. And what ended up happening is that she said, screw it. I don't care about my, my bad reputation. And together they started Blackheart Records in 1980 to produce her records and uh, distribute them. And that made her the first female artist to own and have direct control over her own record company. So she was a pioneer. That made her the first Riot Girl, I think. She, oh, she, she influenced the Riot Girls tremendously. And she started it all in 1980, founding Blackheart Records. And she had a hit 
a string of hits, a lot of hits in the 80s and 90s. I can't even name them all because they're all so amazing. Um, right. So Joan Jett before her, Patti Smith. Yes. Right? But yeah, I think Joan Jett tore it up. Patti Smith was already kind of rocking and Joan Jett just tore it off. And she was, a, she was an angry teenager, an angry teenager. The world needs a lot of those to make world, rock and roll go. The world has a lot the of those. The world has a lot of those. We started that set off with a story by Mike Northcott called Fear and Loathing in Ashtana. And in case you don't know, Ashtana is the capital of Kazakhstan, which is a former Soviet republic that's uh, apparently now a pretty wild place, kind of like the frontier. It was always a... When was it not a wild place? Kazakhstan? Right. Did I just say now it's a wild you place? You said now it's a wild yeah. place. Well, I think... Yeah. It is a wild place. It's always been a wild place. Kazakhstan. Kazakhs. So that was kind of a tribute from Mike to Hunter S. Thompson. The title for sure indicates that fear and loathing in Ashtana. Yesterday was Hunter Thompson's birthday. He would have been 77 years old if he had not shot himself to death in 2005. So kind of happy day after your not birthday, you would have been 77 Hunter Thompson. Yeah, man. Sorry. I don't want to bring it down. So now what you got to do, I guess, I guess Hunter, you know what I just realized? Oh, you realized something. That's never a good thing for me. It's time. It's time. It's time. Skip here. Skip Papadopoulos from KLSP. Your home for news in the greater Portland area and beyond. It's been a rough couple of days around here. There's a fire back in the edit bay. Something to do with uh, sparklers and pop rocks. I'm not sure. And my story fell through. I had a story about a bluegill hatchery I thought would work out. But it turns out that people fall in the spawning pond all the time. I thought it was something in the news, but no one else did. Did I ever tell you how I got here? I got this job, how I got into television? Well, the story, it's kind of about a girl. Most of them are. See, I was just a dirt farmer. Grew up in the wash, south of Lewiston. We had about 200 acres, grew some beets, some beans. Every couple of years, a flood would come along. Land would wash out. Me and my buddy Johnny, we didn't have anything better to do but sit there and Watch the water rise and watch the people rush around. Well, then all of a sudden along comes this white, big white truck, mast on the top. They stop, and we're watching, and all of a sudden out pops a vision. Some reporter coming up starts talking to people. Turns out her name was Jennifer Marcus, KLSP. So she was doing a story, and it was about the floods and I fell in love with not just her, but the job. Such an interesting thing, such a rush to be on television. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I knew right then that's what I wanted to do. No one thought I could do it. I was just some redneck farmer. Well, I showed him. Two years at community college, two more years at journalism school, then I bounced around. I had shitty jobs in radio and TV. Hell, I worked in... From Frankfurt to the Quad Cities and some of the worst jobs you could think of. Hell, I changed oil and cars for six months. And then I noticed there was an opening at KLSP. I thought, can I get back to where I wanted to be from the beginning? Well, I got the job. Weekend anchor. Skip Papadopoulos. Well, I pull in the first day and guess what? She's still there. Jennifer Marcus, main anchor. I only got to work with her one year. It was a great year. Hmm. I fucked her just that one time back in that edit bay. She quit. I think she's managing a string of O'Charlie's restaurants somewhere near Boca Raton. Hmm. It's funny how things work out. This is Skip Papadopoulos. Here's to you. Okay, Skip. As always, an interesting report for the late local news from Skip. What do you think of that story, Shannon? Yeah, I don't know. You see that guy, you see his publicity photos, and you think, you know, he's got he's got it all figured out. He's got that shiny rich sheen going on. And then you, you know, you hear stuff like this and you wonder if... I don't think he know, was a dirt farmer. No, I think he's a big fat liar. I thought, he told me he grew up he in Iceland. He never changed oil. He never changed oil. He may car. have changed oil. He never changed oil. But he grew up in Iceland is what I heard. I think he told me himself. 
He's always got a story about where he came from, every single time. But I do believe that Jennifer Marcus is, in fact, running an O'Charlie's in Boca Raton. I think that's known. I think it's on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, she, and I think she's doing a hell of a job, actually, at it. Oh, yeah. No, she was always really, you know, destined for that. Eh, kind of, I would say kind of a mediocre anchor. Certainly, I mean, when Skip stepped in, he, created, he cast a long shadow. I mean, when Boca calls, you got to go. Jennifer Marcus. got to go. Thank you, Skip, for another thought-provoking and interesting report. We're going to move on with our show tonight. Stories where the writer is the main character of something that is fictional and or made up. My name is Erin, and I'm a journalist for a small Oregon Coast newspaper called Manzanita Musings. Okay, it isn't really a newspaper. It's my personal blog. But loads of people read it. It's quite popular. Well, actually, my entire extended family reads it. At least they say they do, although the blog statistics don't quite support that. I do know I have two solid readers. They read every single thing I write. They comment, too. I got a call from a young man named Nicholas. He had the oddest story about a strange experience he had. I met him at the ice cream shop in Manzanita. Manzanita is a pretty small town, and if you're going to go to town, you might as well go to the ice cream shop. I recognized him right away. He definitely looked like a surfer, even though I know he's a kiteboarder. He said people that went out in boats kept seeing these weird fins in the water, and he had no idea what it was. And he'd been out kiteboarding. He got caught in a storm. I don't exactly know what happened, because I don't exactly know what a kiteboard is. And anyway, he said that the kite part of his board kind of got wrapped around him, and he ended up sort of encased, almost like in a, entombed in the kite and drug underwater by the board part. And I was like, oh my gosh, how is it that you are sitting here in front of me? And he said, well, all of a sudden, I felt something. I didn't know what it was. I was spinning, and then I was out. And all I saw was a flash of these iridescent green fins swimming off into the sunset. Believe me, I felt swimmingly good, but I really didn't know what it was. And I'm hoping that you can help me find out. He didn't know what had helped him, but he was convinced it was connected to the mysterious green fin. He wanted to say thank you if possible. I agreed to research the iridescent green fin. The afternoon after I met Nicholas, I went out for my daily two-mile ocean swim. I'm training for the Ironman. The weather was perfect and there were loads of families enjoying the summer sun. I saw some kite boards and knew instantly what they were. I'd never known. Oregon coast water's never warm, but it was pleasant. I swam past the breaking waves and headed north. At my turnaround point, I noticed the sky had gotten darker. I took a minute to look around and noticed the storm was approaching from the north. Since I was swimming south, I decided to race the storm. In retrospect, it was not one of my better ideas. But it was exhilarating. I pretended that I was racing a tsunami and that I had to get to safety. I was swimming so strongly. I felt invincible. That's when tragedy struck. Something hit me hard from the west and I rolled toward the surf. I lost my sense of direction. I had no idea which way was up. The waves were breaking relentlessly over me and I wasn't thinking straight. I was in trouble and the waves wouldn't let up. I had that moment, the one they talk about, where my life flashed before my eyes. I was left slightly disappointed. Was this it? Was this how it was gonna end? I started to go down. After my long swim and the waves beating at me hurt, but not even sure how badly, I sank to the bottom where it was slightly calmer. I tried not to breathe in. I tried not to die, but to enjoy the relative serenity. Something green flashed to my right and then I blocked out. When I came to, I was on a deserted section of the beach. I was lying on the sand, bruised and bloody. Tried to move and vomited up reddish, frothy seawater. Yuck. I noticed some strange marks leading up from the water. I knew I was lucky to be alive. I lay there thinking about the elusive green flash. Have you heard of it? Rare weather conditions cause a green flash to shoot up from a body of water just after the sun sinks below the watery horizon. So few people have seen it that most people don't even think it exists. I thought of the green flash I had just seen before I blacked out. I wondered about a connection to the story Nicholas told me. I mused on the idea of our little town of Manzanita having some sort of green-finned protector. I wasn't sure I was going to keep doing official research on the green fin, but I would certainly keep my eye out, just like Nicholas. I wanted to say thank you. I was happy to be alive. All in all, I felt swimmingly good.
At the top of that set, we had Aaron Gately's story, Swimmingly Good. And just now you heard Liz Fair's Fucking Run. Uh, that song is off of Liz Fair's album Exile in Guyville, which came out 21 years ago. Not 21 years. Really? 21 years ago, yeah. Two decades in a year? And that means that anyone who was born the year this came out is um, can now drink. And is probably doing, you know, a little you-know-what and running. Probably. Probably. Yeah. And in two states, they can buy legal marijuana. And what's even Just weirder... that in there. In two states, that's true. Those 21-year-olds, they have it all. Um, so she, uh, Liz Fair, according to her, it was myth, but then I think it's according to her officially, she created Exile in Guyville sort of as a um, step-by-step comparison to the Rolling Stones um, Exile on Main Street. That was sort of her inspiration. There are the same her, number of her, her kind of uh, template for her, this this album. And uh, when she did that, Exile on Main Street had come out 21 years before that. Wow. Coincidence? I think not. Blowing my mind. Plus, a shout out to Ohio. Liz Fair went to Oberlin. Okay. So... That's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of information there, a lot of connections. 42 years ago for Exile on Main Street, 21 years ago for Exile in Guyville. That makes us like 30, right? Totally 30. 29. You're, oh, you're 29. Sorry. Right, of course. It makes you 30. I remember going to your 29th birthday. I bet you do. I do indeed remember that. So up next, we have a nice little surprise, which is our next story is going to be Performed live in the studio, White Tiger Lounge. I spent last summer sitting out by the pool at the club. I was on a 10-week psychological leave of absence from my job, and my wife was busy making partner, so it fell to me to accompany the kids. We could have afforded a nanny, of course, but the kids were growing up fast, and I figured this was probably my last chance to spend any amount of quality time before college in the empty nest. I ended up spending most of it out at the poolside drinking white wine. The kids sometimes played in the pool and sometimes they didn't. I'm not sure what they were doing when they weren't splashing around in front of me. I wasn't even sure what they were doing most of the time when they were right there. Marco Polo, maybe, or making out with the lifeguard. I honestly don't know. My first day, I headed over to the southern-facing side of the pool where the serious tanning was going on. I know all about skin cancer, but I figured the hell with it. This is my one summer off. I'm going to get a San Tropez tan. There was an empty lounger at the end of a row of five classically perfect country club women, oiled up and laid out in expensive bikinis like a photo shoot of trophy wives for CEO magazine. I didn't ask if the seat was taken or if they minded if I joined them. The lounger was empty and it was a prime spot, so I just laid down my towel and stretched out without thinking about it too much. No one spoke to me or acknowledged my presence in any way, which wasn't too surprising. I was new at the club and didn't know very many people. I certainly didn't know these women, who looked like they must be one of the club's elite cliques. I hid behind my book and did my best to ignore them right back, but their conversation got in my head, and once that happens, it's impossible not to listen. They were talking about how drug companies target anyone who feels the slightest bit alienated or unhappy, and how they bombard parents with worries about their children's attention span and behavior. As the conversation went on, I I kept expecting to hear about the kinds of pills they and their husbands and their children were taking, but they never said anything more personal than the occasional reference to a friend of mine. You don't know her. The next day... As I spread out my towel, it struck me that maybe this particular lounger was empty because no one else was welcome there. That these women had claimed the prime territory because of their elite status, and it didn't matter that there were six loungers and only five of them. I guess I was like the new kid at school sitting down at the cheerleader's lunch table, but I didn't care. I wanted to hear what they had to say. I'd been drawn into these women's world, and I was dying to learn something about their lives. The previous day they hadn't made any personal disclosures, but they had to reveal something about themselves eventually. Actually, they didn't. Over the next couple of days, I realized that they carefully avoided personal revelations of any kind. They never even gossiped. Of course, there were a lot of people within hearing distance, but they never lowered their voices or even leaned in close to share a secret. What they chose to say, they shared with the entire poolside. And what they shared was meandering, but in fact, pretty insightful. They discussed climate change, religion, the boomerang generation, debt ceiling politics, literature, the use and abuse of social media. They were intelligent and well-read. It was like a roundtable discussion on PBS, except 
They were laying in a row of parallel poolside loungers, drinking white wine at a pretty vigorous pace and talking mostly with their eyes closed, their bodies stretched out for maximum exposure to the sun. Not that it was all high-minded topics. They spent plenty of time talking about shopping, pedicures, restaurants, and celebrities. But they were impressive nonetheless. Here was a group of rich country club wives who knew as much about recent Supreme Court rulings and 20th century fiction as they did about Ryan Gosling and Oprah. I fell in love with them all, individually and as a group. I wondered if their husbands appreciated them as much as I did, or even cared, if their marriages were solid or in trouble. I never got any indication either way. All I had to go on was what they didn't say, the unspoken boundaries. I figured out pretty quickly that infidelity wasn't on the syllabus, not even in the abstract. Even when they talked about celebrities, they didn't talk about their affairs. Also on the forbidden list, dietary regimens, charity work, money, therapy, prenuptial agreements, drunk driving, and pretty much anything that could give any hints about what these women's lives were like. It took until Tuesday of the second week for my presence to be acknowledged. There was a lull in the conversation, and Heidi leaned forward just the slightest bit, looked over, and asked me what I was reading. I was thrilled at this unexpected opening, but I wanted to avoid seeming too eager. Without saying a word, I closed the book and passed it down the line so all the gals could get a look. The Body Artist by Don DeLillo. It came back a few minutes later with oily fingerprints, and I thought that would be the end of it. But then Melissa mentioned that she'd read White Noise and thought it was pretty good. Sydney said she'd been, never been able to get into those postmodern writers like DeLillo and Pynchon. If she was going to read something for that generation, she preferred John Updike or Philip Roth. Tiffany said she liked postmodern ideas, and especially the ones that were all fundamentally alienated from ourselves and from each other, but they were always struggling to find meaning and connection nonetheless. Abby agreed, then admitted that she'd started Gravity's Rainbow several times, but never been able to finish it. There was a pause where I might have added something, might have mentioned that I'd never finished Gravity's Rainbow either, or agreed with Tiffany about postmodern thematics, or said that I also preferred Updike and Roth. But I thought too long about what to say, and before I could join in, the conversation veered off into a discussion of George Clooney, and I realized I'd lost my chance. I brought a different book the next day, a nice thick one so it would be obvious that I'd finished The Body Artist. I was like a fisherman trying to figure out what lure would grab the gal's attention and get me another conversational nibble. This time, I intended to sink the hook. Gulag Archipelago. It did the trick. It was Sydney in the lounger next to mine who asked what I was reading today. I said the author's name. Solzhenitsyn, before passing it down the line. Tiffany said she'd read it for a Russian history class, and Heidi put in that she'd started it one winter years ago, but thought it was pretty grim stuff, and she'd put it down. I agreed that it was very dark, especially for a summer read, and I said I probably wasn't going to finish it either. I got a warmer reception the next day with The Sun Also Rises. They'd all read it, and everyone understood what Lady Brett was going through. They felt the dramatic tension, the horrible irony of Jake's situation, and the realistic basis of Robert's anxiety. It was agreed that Hemingway was a sexist prick, but that he understood the damaged human heart and the miseries that love could put people through. Sidney raised a toast to Hemingway, and five arms swung across at each other in a practice motion. I'd seen them toast each other this way before. They drained their drinks like Cossacks preparing to ride into battle. Tiffany swirled her empty glass at a passing waiter and ordered another round of Pinot Grigio. She made sure to let him know that it should be six glasses, not the usual five. I tried to play it cool when I heard this, but I think I must have been beaming. Not that they were looking at me. As usual, everyone was laying back, staring up at the sky with their eyes closed. They took their glasses one by one as the waiter moved down the line, crouching deeply at each lounger so that nobody had to reach up. When he got to my end, I took the one remaining glass as nonchalantly as I could and began sipping along with the others. And that was it. I was now one of the gals by the pool. I felt like I could participate in the conversation any time, though I still did a lot more listening than talking. Acceptance into this tribe was enough. I didn't need to make myself a star player. I was perfectly happy just being there, knowing that I'd get a new white wine every 40 or 45 minutes along with the others. How they drank away every afternoon without getting messy or maudlin or fat and out of shape, I'll never know. I spent a good chunk of every morning working out while the kids watched TV or did whatever they did on the internet. I suppose the gals worked out in the morning too, or maybe they just never ate. We didn't talk about it. Diets, exercise, elective surgery, all taboo. The strangest part was that none of them seemed to socialize with each other anywhere other than the poolside. There was never any mention of seeing each other at a cocktail party or a barbecue or a charity fundraiser. Lunch was never suggested, 
We existed for each other only on weekday afternoons. It was like we were actors in some kind of postmodern play put on for the waiters and lifeguards and other club members at the pool. Only there was no collective backstage, no exiting the scene to enter another type of shared reality, no cast party. It never came up how weirdly dissociated this was, and I certainly didn't say anything. It was their system, and for me, it was part of the charm. I don't know how the gals felt about it. Secure, maybe, or isolated, I really don't know. Personal feelings were at the top of the taboo list. In that way, it was just like being in a group of men. No emotions. The big difference is that men would have had to trot out their accomplishments and prod each other for theirs. They would have had to posture and bluster and compare. This never happened with the gals. I think this was partly for individual protection and partly for the sake of the group. One of the women had to be from a better family or graduated from a more prestigious university. One of them was probably the club tennis champion or on the board of directors or the granddaughter of a founding member. The personal was a minefield of invidious comparisons that the gals scrupulously avoided. Whatever the reason, I found it refreshing. It was certainly more congenial than my home, which was the usual collection of disappointments and subtle tortures. Like every idol, it felt like it would last forever, even though it was doomed from the start. The summer would end soon, and I'd have to go back to work. I'd never get to have lunch with the cheerleaders again. The last time I saw any of the gals was at the Labor Day barbecue, the official end of summer. Sydney's husband, who I met for the first time, got drunk and pushed me in the pool. He tried to play it off like it was a joke, but I could see the hostility in his eyes, and he didn't seem all that drunk to me. I was drunk enough to think about coming out of the pool swinging, but my wife, in a rare display of concern, cocooned me in a towel before I could do anything. I sloshed off to the men's locker room to change into my spare golf clothes, and that was how it ended. Anticlimactic, like real life always is. And she slams the door in his drunken face And now he stands outside And all the neighbors start to gossip and drool He cries, oh girl, you must be mad What happened to the sweet love you and me had? Against the door he leans and starts a scene And his tears fall and burn his garden green And so castles made of sand Fall in the sea eventually. A little Indian brave who, before he was ten, played war games in the woods with his Indian friends, and he built a dream that when he grew up he would be a fearless warrior Indian chief. Many moons passed, and more the dream grew stronger till tomorrow he would sing his first war song and fight his first battle. And something went wrong. Surprise attack killed him in his sleep that night. And so castles made of sand melts into the sea eventually. She was crippled for life and she couldn't speak a sound And she wished and prayed she could stop living So she decided to die She drew a wheelchair to the edge of the shore And to her legs she smiled, you won't hear me no more But then a sight she never seen made her jump and say Look, a golden winged ship is passing my way And it really didn't have to stop It just kept on going And so castles Made of sand Slips into the sea Jimi Hendrix experience, Castles Made of Sand. That song's on the group's second album, Axis Bold as Love, which was released in 1967, the same year as their first album. They were actually contractually obliged to make two albums in the year 1967. 
That album got to number three on the U.S. charts. Uh, and that song fits our autobiographical theme tonight. It's a song about Jimmy's childhood, uh, some of it real, and then some of it kind of how he used to think and imagine and picture things. We started that off with a story called What I Did Last Summer. And that was me reading live here in the studio. But that's not what you did last summer because it's a fictional, it's a fictional something, story. Something. But yeah. you could have. You should have. I, you know, where's the club? I would love to have, I would love to join that club. I can't find it. It's, uh, I found it in they my imagination. They spent the entire party in the kitchen, but they were never alone. Sorry about that. I messed up there. That's, uh, doing my own engineering preview. here. Preview. Sneak preview. That's a sneak preview. Okay, so since, uh, since the iPad jumped out ahead of me and uh, decided that we were going to get going, you now know that we've got a story, and this is our last story for the night, and some songs, and we'll talk a little bit more, but we've got one more story tonight, and this one comes from White Tiger Radio's very own Shannon Emerson. They both spent the entire party in the kitchen, but they were never alone. There was always somebody coming in for something and staying to catch up. This particular group of friends only got together once or twice a year anymore. They all lived in the same city, but it seemed that life and kids had taken up more and more space over the years. Fewer people had time or energy for a Friday night gathering just because. When they were all new parents, they'd talk about the day they could go out without needing to call, chit-chat with, and ultimately pay a babysitter. It was the Holy Grail. The big payoff for all those years in the trenches following two-year-olds around at parties or getting a little too drunk and talking a little too loudly about what their spouse lacked. The future was supposed to offer freedom and a return to the good times. But everyone was busy now and exhausted and didn't really want to be invited to parties because they'd just have to say no again anyway. Finally, the kitchen crowd had whittled down to them and the hostess. They kept looking at each other as the hostess went on about how she'd had the entire party catered by the Mexican restaurant in her neighborhood and could they believe how good it was. They said they couldn't. He suggested she better get back to the party now that she'd freshened her margarita. The hostess laughed as though she'd made a joke. She gave them a look and turned to leave. Now they were alone. She was leaning up against the counter by the sink. He moved toward her and put his hand on her waist. He looked in the direction the hostess had gone, then leaned in to kiss her. Not here, she said. Where, he asked, his face close to hers. The garage. He knew where the key was and quickly had it in his hands. She was smiling in the darkness as she led them down the short driveway toward the garage.
top of that set, we had Just Because by Little Old Me. Shannon Emerson. And after that, we had uh, Sea of Love by Phil Phillips, which is actually the stage name for the actual writer and original performer of that song. Uh, Phil Phillips was born John Philip Baptiste in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And he changed it to Phil Phillips? Well, he changed it because of a record producer who recommended that he have a stage name, which is odd because, yeah. John Baptiste Philip would Baptiste. be the best stage name ever. Phil Baptiste is like, people would never believe it was his real name. Uh, he was, so he, when he wrote the song, he was working as a bellhop and uh, it was 1958 and he was trying to press, impress a girl and he knew how to play guitar. So he decided to write a song to try to impress her and... Apparently, the um, gas meter reader overheard him practicing it and said, uh, you know, you need to go talk to this record producer, George Curry. And George convinced him to change his name and recorded his song. And then, of course, it's been covered by many people. Um, my personal favorite is the Cat Power version. Oh, I love that one. It's so good. I love every version the of the song. The Robert Plant version is a good one too, despite it being Robert Plant. Right, right. They're all good. Robert it's a great Plant song. And the well, who, wait, who was? Well, I don't, it's been covered it was by the Honey Bees or something. The Honey Drippers. Honey Drippers. Honey yes. Honey Bees. Yeah. It's an amazing song. You can't wreck it. It's a good song. Possibly even I could cover it and come out doing okay. I doubt it. I well, doubt yeah. it. Well, yeah. It's pushing it. I'm pushing it. <laughs> You're pushing you don't think it. I you could did a live Steven? story tonight. Let's just why don't you just rest just on your rest laurels on and pipe down over there. Okay, I will. I'll pipe down and rest on on whatever I have to rest on. But I think, I don't this, think is, I have this has around. been a uh, this has been a success. I like I like the songs, fictionalized songs, where the author is the main character and the non-fictionalized music, which I think you know. There's a little crossover there. There's there's lies everywhere. I mean, that's right. one thing we know. Right. The ba- the the line between real life and the stories we tell each other and ourselves about our real lives, I think is, uh, I think it's not a line. I think it's a lie. I think it's an illusory boundary. It's All right. Stop me before I keep going. Okay. That, uh, that was our show. It's now 10.02 PM here in Portland, Oregon. It's pretty hot. We got the fan on here in the white tiger studio. It's summertime, July, and we're glad that you listened to our show. We sure are. Thanks. Uh, you can tune in. And glad. Thank you to everybody who participated. We love all to of our contributors. put the call out there and get people who contribute. It's great to hear the stuff. And We're always looking for writers. We are always looking for writers and uh, occasionally songsters. You can so. send us an email at, hey, I want to do a story for White Tiger Radio at youcandowhatyouthink.com. In case you didn't catch that, that's, hey, I want to do a story for White Tiger Radio at youcandowhatyouthink.com. Send us an email. We'll let you know what our upcoming story challenges are because we don't just let people tell us stories or send stories. We give them, a, give them some guidelines. Parameters, we like, challenges. We like rules around here. We're rules, people, challenges. So that was our show. Our next show is next month, Saturday, August 23rd. It's going to be a music-oriented show. The last song we have tonight is from the Rolling Stones from their 1997 album, Bridges to Babylon, an album that I had never appreciated until recently. The song we're going to play, according to Keith Richards, who wrote the song and who does the lead vocals on this one, a pretty rare Rolling Stone song with Keith doing the lo- lead vocals. I hope you appreciate that we're going to get one of those in because he's, he's a great singer. He said, it's a song about several women and actually starts when I was a teenager. This is Thief in the Night.
生命。